Do we see a problem here? Do we see a problem? Who owns YouTube? Google. YouTube controls Google. They're the same entity. They decide what is going to be searched and revealed in their search engines. This is policy. This is how they're trying to control what you see and what you don't see. And this is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. So now you've got one entity, the biggest entity in the world, Google, controlling what you can't and can't see. They won't take my videos down, but they won't allow them to be monetized. And when those ads run under them, that everybody complains and bitches about, oh, you got so many ads. Yeah, for every 10,000 views, I get a dollar. <laughs> Hello? So it's not for the money I'm doing this. This is a volunteer show, literally, at this point. Make a donation. I need your help. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome, one and all. Get in your most comfy chair. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of choice going. Tonight, we do part two. We continue with the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs, with none other than Ted Sorensen. As I had mentioned in the first part of the show, I had gone down to New York City in 2010, September of 2010, to interview three Nobel Peace Laureates while I was there. I was most honored to be able to interview Ted Sorensen in his Manhattan apartment all afternoon. And as it turned out, it was Ted's final interview. He was ready to unload. He was most gracious with his time, absolutely most gracious with his time. Just to recap what happened in the first half, we talked about the Bay of Pigs, how the CIA lied, President Kennedy, why it was destined to fail, and why the Soviet Union thought the best way to defend Cuba would be to put nuclear weapons inside Cuba from further American attacks. We also discussed why Kennedy was so against war, and that was because of the death of his brother and PT-109 when he lost crewmates. We're going to pick it up now and continue with Ted Sorensen in his own words and the Cuban Missile Crisis. The New Frontier. The New Frontier was a term that the press gave to the Kennedy administration. The term was derived from a speech Kennedy had given on accepting the Democratic Party's nomination as their candidate to run for president in 1960. Now the speech went, we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 60s. The frontier of unknown opportunities and perils. The frontier of unfulfilled hopes and unfulfilled threats. Ted Sorensen, speechwriter. Amazing, eh? With the words? Beyond that frontier are uncharted areas of science and space, unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered problems of ignorance and prejudice, unanswered questions of poverty and surplus. That's from President John F. Kennedy's Democratic Party nomination acceptance speech. Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, July 15th, 1960. Now, another example is President Lyndon Johnson's administration was labeled the Great Society, also from a speech Johnson had made. Kennedy had some amazing people on his team, and I thought it would be apropos to ask Ted Sorensen about them. So I asked him, I said, I want to mention the Kennedy team, he had put a dream team together to coin a popular phrase. Certainly, you had been with him for a while, and then he brings in McNamara, Bobby, his brother. There was other as well. There was Kenny O'Donnell, Dave Powers, etc., etc. Can you talk a little bit about this dream team and the dynamic, the new frontier, as he coined it? Sorensen answered me. He said, well, firstly, just look at the history afterwards which is unlike most American administrations, not one member of the Kennedy team was ever subsequently indicted for some kind of corruption. Not one member of that Kennedy team ever wrote a book attacking or criticizing Kennedy and his decisions. So it was a team of people 
who were dedicated to the best interests of a better country and a better world. They believed in Kennedy. He was loyal to them, and they were loyal to him. It was an unusual group of a very able, committed people. I know that the song Camelot about mythical King Arthur is a song and a myth that was applied, but we weren't a mythical group. We were just ordinary flesh and blood human beings. But it was a very special time because we had a very special leader, Holland. And he brought everybody together. Was there an outrage from the public, by the way, or from his opposition when he brought Bobby in as Attorney General? Sorensen, yes. And I suppose if I would look at it objectively today, and as I said in my book, Counselor, Life at the Edge of History, I said it's probably not a good idea for any president, even John Kennedy, to appoint his own brother. Even though Bobby Kennedy is Attorney General, the Attorney General is supposed to be, under the Constitution, a check on presidential power. He's supposed to be an independent source of law and order in a country that lives and is ruled by law. And I suppose if any other president appointed his brother as Attorney General, there would have been an outcry, and I'd probably be leading the outcry. We saw when George W. Bush appointed his pal and his personal lawyer to be his Attorney General. That didn't work as a restraint on the president. It had just the opposite effect. The Justice Department itself under George W. Bush was the leading lawbreaker. They were authorizing torture, which is against international law and against the laws of the United States. And they were encouraging the president that he could wiretap, that he could assume special powers as commander in chief, which is not provided for by the Constitution. So. If I'm going to complain about other people's attorneys generals who are not at arm's length independent, I suppose that I should say that, well, we were lucky that Bobby Kennedy turned out to be as good an attorney general as he was, and to play a strong role as he did in bringing about and supporting the revolution in civil rights that JFK finally led after he'd been in office a couple of years. The Cuban Missile Crisis, to be direct and undramatic, the Cuban Missile Crisis is the closest the world has ever come to non-existence. The doomsday clock, folks, is symbolic of a clock that represents how close the world is to midnight, and midnight represents extinction. The clock began near the beginning of the nuclear age, 1947, by the board of directors of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists at the University of Chicago. Originally, it was set at seven minutes to midnight at that point, and depending on the political climate of the world, it either moves closer to midnight or away. The closest recorded time to midnight occurred in 1953 because both the Soviet Union and the United States had tested thermonuclear warheads within nine months of each other. Notice I write recorded time. That's because during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962, events between the U.S. and Soviets were escalating so fast, you ready for this? It was impossible to keep up and adjust the clock. Yeah, that's how close we were. Estimates are that the clock reached one second to midnight. That is the stress and pressure, JFK was assaulted by around the clock. Tick-tock, tick-tock. It is imperative for the reader to understand the geopolitical as well as domestic climate JFK found himself in during October 1962. It is also imperative not to underestimate the impact that the Cuban Missile Crisis had on JFK. Understanding the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War will bring the reader to the precipice of the abyss of nuclear holocaust. I will draw an analogy to the fear and panic that swept across both Canada and America after 9-11. We were all raw nerves, pulsating in horror, waiting to be hit again from anywhere. The next attack could be a nuclear one resulting in the death of millions of innocents, including our very own children. What caused the panic, fuel terrored, was the knowledge that we had no control over the events taking place. 
and the events that could take place. Vulnerability. The country was numb, awaiting a worst-case scenario that would just play out like a scene from a disaster movie unfolding, only without ending credits. And depositing your empty popcorn bag in the trash, this was no fantasy movie. This was the real deal. This was what JFK was up against in October of 1962 when nuclear missiles were found only 70 miles off the shore of the USA in Cuba. The missiles could reach and destroy most of the United States in under five minutes. No time to evacuate, even the White House and the President. No concrete nuclear-proof bunker under the White House in 1963, by the way, folks. The times were such that life was lived between deep breaths of relief that the missiles had not been launched between East and West, ushering a nuclear holocaust and the end of the world, and new parents from World War II with rapidly growing families. A population growth spurt so unprecedented that their children would be given the term baby boomers. On one hand, there was the constant threat that the world, quite literally, could end in an instant through nuclear holocaust. On the other hand, that eternal hope and optimism for a world free of conflict and full of prosperity and a better life for their children than what they had for themselves. Now, on the surface, these two dichotomies may seem at odds with each other, but truly, this is what America is all about, the external beacon of light leading forward through the darkness for a better future. There are and will be faltering along the way, but that eternal spark for new ideas, better ways in pursuit of happiness are embedded in the psyche and spirit of all Americans. So I asked Ted, Ted, I was wondering if we can go into the Cuban Missile Crisis now, Tuesday, October 16th, 1962. Can you take us through that momentous beginning? of that crisis. Sorensen, I certainly can, because it's still very vivid in my mind as if it happened yesterday. The president called me in that morning, Tuesday, October 16th. He told me that to his astonishment and anger, he had been, we'd all been lied to. Khrushchev had a back-channel means of corresponding with Kennedy. He lied about what he was doing in Cuba. The Soviet ambassador, not a bad fellow, Antoli Dobrynian, he called both Bobby and me in separate occasions to lie to us about what was going on in Cuba. Now, folks, the U-2, not the band, was the name of the secret CIA spy airplane. Now, it had a ceiling of 70,000 feet. Its main purpose was taking high-altitude photos over the Soviet Union and Cuba, primarily to obtain troop and armament deployments. It was flown by a single pilot and had extremely long wings for lift at high altitudes. Now, here's some trivia about it. It's a spy plane. Guess where this plane was first tested? Are you ready for this? You're going to laugh. Area 51. I kid you not. Funny, eh? Way back on August 1st, 1955. Now about you 2 the band. Here's some more trivia. It surprises me how many young folks, fans of their song Pride, don't realize the lyrics are about Dr. Martin Luther King and assassination. The lyrics go, early morn, April 4, shots ring out in the Memphis sky. Free at last, they took your life, they could not take your pride. Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis. Many suspect the victim of a conspiracy. Only three months later, Bobby would be murdered via conspiracy on June 6, 1968. Stick around and read the rest of the book as the same names involved in the JFK assassination pop up over and over again in both Dr. King's and Bobby's. Back to Mr. Sorensen. And Kennedy said these U-2 airplanes that I mentioned a moment ago, taking pictures 50,000 feet above Cuba, 
had then had those pictures developed by the geniuses who analyze and interpret photographs for the CIA, and it showed it was the beginnings, just the beginnings, but unmistakably the beginnings of Soviet missile sites. Missiles that carried nuclear payloads and had a range capable of devastating almost any part of the United States and most parts of the Western Hemisphere, which, by the way, includes Canada. And he said he was calling for a meeting later that morning. He wasn't calling a meeting of the National Security Council because that particular body is fixed by a statute. A lot of people, because of their job, are invited to National Security Council meetings, and Kennedy didn't want those people. Some of them, he didn't think, had the kind of judgment and brains that he wanted to give him a recommendation. And some of them, he thought, couldn't keep a secret all that well, especially if they brought their deputies with them, which sometimes people do to show how important they are in Washington. And you get a room full of people and it's almost impossible, A, to get the kind of crisp, precise decision that Kennedy liked to make, and B, to keep a secret. And he didn't want everybody in Washington to know about this because then the Soviets, as he put it, would know that we know and then they might take some preemptive action. Think of the tension there, folks. They might take a first strike approach. That's what he's saying. They might use the missiles or they might send Khrushchev to the United Nations meeting in New York at that time and have him try a little nuclear blackmail. Show pictures of the missiles and say that unless the West backed out of West Berlin, that's where the testing place for freedom was in those days, then he would use the missiles. You see the pressure and the tension these guys were under? Okay, a little background and context here. The Berlin crisis. Okay, West Berlin and the Berlin Wall. When Germany lost World War II in 1945, a lot of people don't remember this stuff today or just aren't aware of it. But this is important, okay? Because we have to study the past to know where we are today. We have to understand what's gone before so we can prevent it from happening again. Further, we look for precedent to solve major problems. And that's why I'm covering the Cuban Missile Crisis, because we have a precedent now to solve major crises. The Berlin Crisis. West Berlin and the Berlin Wall. When Germany lost World War II in 1945, Germany was split into four regions. Bet you guys didn't know that, eh? So, each region was given to a victorious power to govern until a new government, which was acceptable to all four powers, was created. The four governing powers were the United States, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. Now, the city of Berlin was right in the middle of the Soviet section of occupied Germany. So, Berlin, too, was then split into four equal pieces, with each of the above powers taking a slice. So, once more, it was the United States, one, Britain, two, France, three, Soviet Union, four. Each one had a slice of the pie of the big country and a slice of the pie of the city of Berlin. Berlin, too, was then split into four pieces, with each of the above powers taking a slice. Great. So, now you've got three Western Democratic democratic powers with three quarters of Berlin and the communist Soviets never known to play nicely <laughs> with their own slice and on top of that completely surrounding Berlin because they were in charge of that quarter of Germany that Berlin was in and true to character and as things did in the Cold War the shit hit the proverbial fan. 1948 the Soviets declared they didn't want to be friends with the West anymore you see, at the beginning of World War II, 1939, Stalin's Soviet Union had signed, quote-unquote, a non-aggressor pact with Hitler. In other words, they would stay neutral in the war and return for parts of the land of Poland, Romania, Latvia, Finland, Lithuania, Latvia, and as well Estonia. It stayed that way until 1941, when Hitler, to nobody's surprise but Stalin's, betrayed the agreement which Hitler had intended to all along, by the way, 
and attacked the Soviet Union in an operation called Barbarossa. Like I always say, when you get into bed with the devil himself, at one point you're going to get screwed. And did the Soviets ever? The unprepared Soviets almost lost their country. Suddenly, the Soviets now decided it was better to join up now with the Allies, and together they would defeat the Nazis. And they did, four years later in 1945. Back to the not-so-friendly Soviets in 1948. They decided they wanted the whole of Berlin for themselves now for a whole variety of reasons, but mostly because if you controlled Berlin, the capital, you controlled Germany. The Soviets cut off all ground transportation corridors, roads and rail, as well as canals leading into the now besieged city of Berlin. So what they did, okay, once again, they're supposed to be our allies in 1948, right? We just conquered the Nazis. We have taken over Germany, split it up into four, Britain, United States, France, the Russians. In the Russian section is the city of Berlin, a circle, a small circle in Berlin. Once again, that small circle of Berlin, so that one country doesn't own the capital, was split into four. France, Britain, Soviet Union, United States. All of a sudden, the Soviet Union, who's controlling that whole, whole quarter of the country of Germany with Berlin inside, decides that that's it. We're not letting any planes, trains, or automobiles through. Sounds like a movie, but it's true. So what they were going to do is cut off all the food supplies, all the food supplies to the western parts of the country. Tell me that isn't... <laughs> tell me that isn't a, a reason for war right there. But no, the West didn't panic, thank God. So this is what they did. Food and daily living necessities were cut off completely. The one thing the Soviets couldn't control, though, was the airspace. Now, you've probably maybe heard of this. Thus began the Berlin Airlift. The Allies had thousands of planes in operational order after the Second World War. Thousands of them. Lines and lines. They didn't know what to do with them. They filled them to the rafters with baby food, medicine, clothes, everything a city needs for its population. Over 200,000 flights were made in a single year, with 4,700 tons daily flown into Berlin. This enabled the city to survive, and it pissed off the Soviet Union no end. In fact, the Soviets gamble. And this is important, as they would take several more in the near future, backfired. By the end of the year, there was more goods being flown into Berlin than there had been via rail before the blockade. Finally, the Soviets lifted the blockade in 1949. Now, the next crisis in Berlin would come a little over a decade later. It was called the Berlin crisis, and once more the Soviets would flirt with nuclear war, all for power. The Berlin crisis lasted from June 4, 1961, until November 9, 1961. JFK had become president by then in January of 1961, and it was welcome to the majors for President Kennedy, as this would be his first test in the international arena. One of the main irritations for the Soviets was the constant emigration of East Berliners out of communist-ruled section of East Berlin into the free West Berlin side, because people were just crossing over the street. Um, obviously, when you have an affluent society in Western Berlin and a crumbling society and infrastructure under the Soviet rule in Eastern Berlin, well, guess where you're going to go? You know, like you had... Think of any city, if you have family there, you know, you have family in one section, family in the other section, if they're doing well, well, you're going to go live with them. It's as simple as that. And this is what was taking place. So everybody was getting the hell out of the Soviet part of Berlin and going to the West. Makes sense. Makes complete sense. The Soviets seemed powerless to stop the flood. Seriously, given the choice, I suspect you would probably have left a repressive regime for freedom, too. Kennedy gave a televised speech on the night of July 25, 1961. In it, in my interpretation, 
He was preparing for the worst-case scenario, a nuclear exchange with the Soviets, but offering an olive branch at the same time. Now, he increased the military budget, which you may not be aware of at the time. Yes, Kennedy didn't back off the military budget. He increased it, and he increased the draft. He stopped the scheduling mothballing of older military ships, Right after the Second World War, what are you going to do with all these ships, right? Same thing he's doing with the planes. So he stopped the mothballing of older military ships and planes and brought them back into duty. He put together a plan to build fallout shelters for nuclear attack survivors for the population. He was preparing for the distinct possibility of nuclear war. And this is from his speech of July 25th, 1961. We do not want to fight, but we have fought before. And others in earlier times have made that same dangerous mistake of assuming that the West was too selfish and too soft and too divided to resist invasions of freedom in other lands. Those who threaten to unleash the forces of war on a dispute over West Berlin should recall the words of the ancient philosopher, a man who causes fear cannot be free from fear. We seek peace, but we shall not surrender. There's a little uh, Churchillian thing, eh? President John F. Kennedy. The Soviets rolled the dice again and escalated the crisis. They built the Berlin Wall. This is when the Berlin Wall came in, and it was set up to control, control the population in East Berlin. It's as simple as that. In response, President Kennedy mobilized the armed forces. The world held its breath. Wouldn't be the first time. There were several incidents with NATO upper echelon commanders being held up at border crossings between East Berlin and West Berlin. Now, under the agreement between the occupying powers... Remember I mentioned before, Berlin was broken up into four sections. You got Britain controlling one section, France the other, the United States, they're the Western powers, and then the Soviet Union. So there was an agreement that the occupying powers, that this was not permitted. Occupying personnel were to have free movement anywhere in Berlin, and much to the Soviet chagrin, that included East Berlin. In a show of bravado, American tanks were sent to the border, and of course, Soviet tanks were sent to respond. There are pictures where the Soviet Union tanks are 10 feet from the American tanks, both facing each other. That's how close we were. That's how close we were to not being here. If one of them had a shot at each other, it would have just escalated insanely, just like that. Okay, in the end, Kennedy said that a wall was certainly not worth the war. There were those then, and still, think that this was a weak response. Thank goodness they weren't in command, or I wouldn't be writing this and you wouldn't have been reading it. It's important to remember that one of the causes of the Second World War was appeasement of Hitler by the Western powers. To let him do as he pleased before the war in the early and middle 1930s. That was to avert a war. They said, okay, well, if we just give Hitler what he wants here, then he's not going to go to war, and he continued to do that and lied to everybody until it came down to Poland, and that's where the line was drawn. So most of the commanders who had bravely fought the Second World War didn't want to make the same mistake twice in the face of an obvious aggressor as the Soviets were. But the stakes were incredibly higher now. Any war between the two superpowers, the U.S. and Soviets, that would start with conventional weapons couldn't be contained and within days, if not hours, escalate to nuclear holocaust, the doomsday scenario. JFK realized this. This was the first time JFK walked the razor's edge, but it wouldn't be the last. Do we see a problem here? Do we see a problem? Who owns YouTube? Google. YouTube controls Google. They're the same entity. They decide what is going to be searched 
and revealed in their search engines. This is policy. This is how they're trying to control what you see and what you don't see. And this is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. So now you've got one entity, the biggest entity in the world, Google, controlling what you can't and can't see. They won't take my videos down, but they won't allow them to be monetized. And when those ads run under them, that everybody complains and bitches about, oh, you got so many ads. Yeah, for every 10,000 views, I get a dollar. <laughs> Hello? So it's not for the money I'm doing this. This is a volunteer show, literally, at this point. Make a donation. I need your help. So we continue with the Cuban Missile Crisis, Sorensen. So we had to keep it secret. He didn't want a big group. So he was inviting me and Bobby and a couple of others who were not official statutory members of the National Security Council to come to that first meeting later that morning. Now, unlike most presidents who go off to cut brush on their ranch, he's referring to George W. Bush after 9-11, by the way, there, and leave everything else to their subordinates. He wanted everybody there to face each other, to come up with decisions. And later that morning, we had a meeting. And he told us that he wanted us to present to him every single option. We had military options, Diplomatic options, combined military diplomatic, what were the pros, what were the cons? And that was the beginning of 13 long, difficult, dangerous days. And it was not until the 22nd of October, six and a half days later, that he was ready to go on national television and let the world know, let the Soviet Union, let all our allies know exactly what their group that he had assembled around that table, about a dozen of us, what we had decided on and what our decision was, was not the first automatic response, which was to bomb those missile sites, get rid of them. No, that would have started a war. No, our decision, his decision, this is brilliant, folks. I want you to hear this, okay? This is how you solve a problem. Our decision, his decision, JFK's, was to put the ball in Khrushchev's court, make him decide between annihilation for the world or possible humiliation for him. And that option, that's the section option that we chose, was in effect a blockade of destroyers around Cuba to keep out any further Russian shipments we didn't call it a blockade because a blockade can be an act of war under international law. We called it a quarantine, a quarantine against offensive weapons. He wasn't trying to keep out medicine or food or gasoline or energy out of Cuba. He wasn't trying to punish the Cuban people. He just wanted to make sure Khrushchev understood that we were determined to react and resist. So I asked him, I said, sir, you mentioned the quarantine, sir. Who was the person sitting around the table that brought up that idea? To me, it was a stroke of genius. Sorensen says, well, thanks. I don't get any credit for it. <laughs> I think there were two people who do. Interestingly enough, the head of the CIA at the time, John McCone. John McCone was handpicked by Kennedy after he got rid of Alan Dulles because he didn't trust the CIA and he wanted to bring in his own ringer to make sure the CIA was under control. As it turned out, the people underneath John McCone weren't telling John McCone everything that he needed to know. Yeah, more secrets and lies by the CIA. Sorensen continues, I can assure you that had changed since the Bay of Pigs and that CIA chief was no longer around. He's referring to Alan Dulles, who had been the head of the CIA, but who Kennedy had fired after the Bay of Pigs, along with General Charles Cabell. Bizarrely, Alan Dulles was asked to be part of the Warren Commission 
investigation into the JFK assassination. And Charles Cabal's brother was mayor of Dallas at the time of the assassination. There's speculation that maybe he had something to do with the change of the parade route. Speculation. I want to confirm speculation is the word. Also, we know now that General Charles Cabal's brother was a CIA agent. Yeah. How bizarre is that? Yeah, JFK had handpicked his next head of CIA, John McCone, back to Sorensen. But the head of the CIA at that time had been a businessman. He'd been in the shipping business, John McCone. And he said, if you put up a blockade, it's an act of war. Then under most insurance code, any ship from Europe traveling across the Caribbean is going to have to pay three or four times as much as insurance on that cargo as they usually do. And they won't be very happy about that. And then the legal advisor to the State Department, remembering that during um, that before World War II, when Nazi Germany was threatening Western Europe, Franklin Roosevelt had proclaimed what he had called a quarantine of the aggressor. And basically it was an embargo, as I recall. I don't recall it was I was still a baby but that the quarantine was a peaceful act. And later on, the State Department was able to get all of Latin America and the Organization of American States to join with us in adopting and endorsing that quarantine. And that made it a regional security arrangement. A regional security arrangements are permitted under the United Nations Charter, and Kennedy wanted to abide by international law. And I said to him, also a very smart move, were those opposed to the quarantine, those that were adamant about going into Cuba. Sorensen, yes, yes, during the first week of debate and discussion around the cabinet table, there were those who said the quarantine won't accomplish anything. How will it get rid of the missiles? Those missiles are pointed at us. It's a threat. We've got to get rid of them. And I still remember the sentence of one of those hawks, as they were later called. He said, Mr. President, you got to go in there and take Cuba away from Castro. And there was a time before the 13 days ended when it began to look as though maybe they were right. Now, the quarantine was proclaimed. The destroyers surrounded Cuba, but work on the missile sites continued. And then one of our U-2 overfly planes was shot down. And by the time on the 12th day, that Saturday, the 27th of October, it surely looked as though war was likely to come. And some of those hawks were saying, I told you so. Even Lyndon Johnson, who was vice president at the time, I think this story is in my book. He slapped his head down on the table. He said, well, I don't know, he said. All I know is that when a young man walking along a dusty road in Texas of a rattlesnake reared up his poisonous head, the only answer was to take a stick and chop it off. Boy, I said to him, that would have been ominous. Sorensen, so it was a little cool in the room after he said that. And I said, scary, scary, scary. Just a quick abide. Did JFK have second thoughts about keeping Johnson on as vice president in the upcoming second term, 1964? This is important, folks. For those of you that believe part of the reason why Johnson was guilty and of participating in the JFK assassination, many people believe this, they say because Kennedy was going to keep him off the ticket. So Johnson had nothing to lose to stay in power. So this is why this question is important. And I snuck it in <laughs> in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay, so this is this is how you conduct an interview. You be a little sneaky sometimes. Okay, I shouldn't tell you that. Okay. Let me repeat my question. Did JFK have second thoughts about keeping Johnson on as vice president in the upcoming second term, 1964? Sorensen, no. Because Kennedy, by that time, had proclaimed his support of civil rights and had sent to the Congress the most comprehensive civil rights legislation program since the days of slavery. And the South 
was against the program and against Kennedy, and Kennedy felt that he had to keep Johnson, his token Southerner, so to speak, his hand of friendship, his link to the South, so I think it would have been the same team. So there's your answer. Okay, folks, right there from Ted Sorensen, to get the Civil Rights Bill through, he was going to keep Johnson on as vice president. So that can't be part of the reason if Johnson is part of the conspiracy. And you all know, if you're fans of this show, I don't believe that for, in a heartbeat. So there you have it from Ted Sorensen. Okay, never mind what people claim that JFK's secretary said that he was going to be off the ticket. Ted Sorensen was far closer than Evelyn Lincoln to Kennedy. He was going to be on that ticket. If Sorensen says he was, he was going to be. Okay? Let's not argue. That's from Ted Sorensen's own mouth. You can't dispute that. Okay. I continue. Ted, today's generation, for better, for worse, tends to get their history, if you will, from movies. I don't I think of the movie JFK. I think of the movie Thirteen Days. I want to talk to you two about movie thirteen. Did you feel that's in Ted cuts me off right away. First of all, the movie JFK was total fiction. And I'm amazed at how many young people today think it's history. JFK, folks, is a feature film made about the Kennedy assassination by director Oliver Stone. Kevin Costner starred as New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison accused a fellow by the name of Clay Shaw in the assassination of JFK. The conclusion of the movie is that JFK was the victim of a quote-unquote military coup d'etat and the overthrow of the American government with Vice President Lyndon Johnson seizing power. It is my feeling, for a whole variety of reasons, it wasn't a coup at all. And I'll explain that in a later chapter. The movie is worth watching as Stone does a Herculean task of bringing all the lore about the assassination into the narrative. It is also a masterpiece of filmmaking for film students. That doesn't mean, folks, I don't believe there was a conspiracy Sorensen confirms conspiracy, just not a military coup that we have seen in third world countries. Doesn't mean the military intelligence wasn't involved, okay? I'm just making that clear. I'm, all I'm saying is the tanks didn't roll up and take over with a general, okay? And I don't think Johnson knew anything about it either. And I've given my reasons in Breaking Down Eight Myths. You can find that show online. I don't want to get into it here. It's going to take up too much time. 13 Days is another feature film also starring Kevin Costner, who this time plays a top JFK aide by the name of Kenny O'Donnell. The movie is about the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I would say is essential watching for a clearer picture of the tension that the world was under and everyone at the White House was feeling. It shows how close we came and how the military continued to undermine Kennedy, trying to force him into war. It's worth noting again, as stated earlier in this book, it was Kenny O'Donnell that was directly behind JFK's limousine in the motorcade in Dealey Plaza and saw the shots from the grassy knoll. That's He's committed to that. He's on record saying that. Kenny O'Donnell saw the shots come from the grassy knoll. Once again, you can find that information in the top 10 facts and proof that the JFK assassination was a conspiracy. You can find that show online. Back to Sorensen. This may end up being a three-parter, folks. I'm just looking at the time. I don't think we're going to get done with it in 14 minutes. Or like 10 minutes, I should say. Sorensen. On the other hand, the movie 13 Days, that had a few imaginative changes from history, which we can talk about, but essentially it was accurate. It was based on the documents. It was based on a couple of long conversations that the producers and writers had with me that conveyed pretty well the danger we were in and the very cool objective leadership that was provided by John F. Kennedy that steered our little group called the XCOM through those 13 days to a peaceful solution, Holland. 
In that movie, Kenny O'Donnell plays a prominent role. Many people say that really was you. Do you agree with that? Sorensen, oh, I don't know about many people, but I'm immodest enough to report to you that the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace had the courage to have a showing of that movie in Moscow. Imagine that showing 13 days in Moscow. Incredible. And they flew Bob McNamara, that, by the way, folks, JFK Secretary of Defense, who played a decisive role as well as well in the peaceful resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and me, and one of the producers of the movie, over for that showing. And at the press conference after the screening, Bob McNamara opened the press conference by saying to the producer, it's a fine movie, you know, but you have one fundamental flaw. And the producer swallowed it. He said, well, you know, I guess there's many. Which one did you have in mind, Bob? And Bob McNamara, bless his heart, said it wasn't Kenny O'Donnell who brought us all together. It was Ted Sorensen. By that, I assume he means that the speech that I drafted for JFK before he made his decision whether to go with the quarantine or go with the bombing. The group that wanted the quarantine asked me to give him a speech so he would see what the components were, what it would look like. And yes, I did put that in my speech eventually. All the arguments, all the components of the response, including the talk about negotiations and recognition of the importance of peace, even the appeal to the people of Cuba to make clear that we were not trying to hurt them. And that did bring all the elements of everybody's thinking around the table together. But I want to stress that it was John Kennedy who brought us all together and led the way. Holland, let's talk about that speech. How did you manage to write that speech under incredible pressure? I mean, this was life and death. Nobody knew the outcome. You were looking ahead, hoping to make the correct decisions to keep the world out of nuclear holocaust, virtually the death of the world. How did you come to write that speech? The power of the pen is mightier than the sword. Ted is a man that has fought for peace and humanity all his life. When the world needed that the most, we had President John F. Kennedy and Ted Sorensen. And of course, I'm talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. If it were not for the fortitude of Ted Sorensen and the power of his words, you and I would not be reading this right now. The world would still be reeling from the horrors of a nuclear holocaust, a holocaust that was far too real in October 1962 when it was discovered the Soviets had placed offensive nuclear weapons in Cuba. Missiles that would only take five minutes to reach Washington. And in those days, no nuclear-proof bunker, safely tucked away hundreds of feet below the White House. JFK handed Ted the future of the human race when he told him to draft a letter to the Soviet Premier Khrushchev in a last-ditch attempt to resolve the crisis. Ted told me he was afraid, but had no choice. The world depended on it. Well, Sorensen says, that was my job in those days. I was much more involved with Kennedy in terms of formulating his program, policy messages, speeches, than I was involved in foreign policy until he invited me to participate in the XCOM. So when the group favoring, as I did, the quarantine approach over the bombing approach, when they asked me to put together a speech, I went to my office, which wasn't far away from the cabinet room, and I sat there staring at a blank paper. And thinking to myself, what can I say? How's the quarantine going to get the some of these were the same questions the hawks were asking. How was the quarantine going to get rid of the missiles? How was the quarantine going to diminish the danger? And so on. And finally, I went back to the Dove group. And I told them I have these questions. And we sat around the table and answered those questions. I went back to my office. By this time, it was late in the evening. 
I had to cancel a dinner date with one of the grand dams of Washington, whose home I was expected at for dinner. When I told her, because nobody knew there was a crisis, I told her I couldn't explain what I was doing, but I just couldn't come for dinner that night. She was nice enough an hour later to send her housekeeper over with a covered plate with a delicious dinner that fortified me through the night. And thank goodness, because I worked through the night on that speech. I took a look at Woodrow Wilson's declaration of war in World War I. I interrupted Ted for the first time. I said, sir, can I interrupt you for a second? Because there's something I'm, there's sometimes I'm faced with decisions like that. Not of that magnitude, but I want to know what you eat that night. <laughs> he laughed too. Soren said, I have no recollection, but I remember that it was hot and very tasty. But this series of questions, you're actually overlooking a much more difficult draft under much greater pressure. And that was the draft letter to Khrushchev on Saturday, October 27th, the ultimate day of the crisis. And that letter had, I like to think, it had a part in persuading Khrushchev that he had made a reckless gamble as he called it later, and he pulled the missiles out. Okay, folks, I have to tell you, in truth, I was being very selfish in the interview. This was Ted Sorensen, folks. Ted Sorensen. I had fully intended to get to this most important letter, perhaps the most important letter the world has ever seen, and has yet to see, as it virtually saved the world. But as I said, I wanted to get every detail from Ted I could. And that's why I waited to get to this subject. But I guess Ted figured that, like 99% of interviewers, I didn't know the subject matter. I always read the book of my guests before they come on the show and always do extensive research myself. No researchers for me on the subject. The reason is self-knowledge and a responsibility to inform you, the audience, about the story and the environment surrounding it. Most of my audience are of a younger demographic and things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, Bay of Pigs, etc. are unknown. That is also why in this book, based on the conspiracy, I am taking the time to inform readers of the reality of the times, the context of the times, and explain the people behind the names and events. All of the reasons why the cover-up of the conspiracy. It is an understanding the threat to world annihilation that played the key part. And no single crisis best shows that than the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm going to leave you there. And you know what the next section is? The Juice. The letter Ted Sorensen wrote that saved mankind. That's going to have to be part three, and that's going to have to wait until next week because we're out of time, baby. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. Thank you all for joining us. Please do make a donation. YouTube has decimated my channel. I make $6.35 a day for over 400 videos. I encourage comments below. As always, please do make comments. No worries there. Keep them civil. Take care of each other right there. I'm Brent Holland. See you next time.